Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Proverbs chapter 11. We're continuing our series called Grow Up through the book of Proverbs. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and want to follow along with us, you can grab one of those black Bibles that are under the chairs, and we'll be on page 535 uh, in the black Bibles if you want to read with us. I'm going to start with one verse, and then we're going to kind of bounce around quite a bit in the in this series through Proverbs, we've tried, been trying to get the vision that God has for us, that we would have a life uh, that is weighty and significant. Um, the vision of biblical wisdom that's given in Psalm 1 is that uh, if you listen and meditate on God's word, you'll be like a tree that's planted by streams of water. You will be strong. You'll be able to endure hard times. You'll have strength and fruit and shade to provide for others. And so that's really the, the vision of wisdom in the Bible throughout all of the wisdom books. And then Proverbs is a great Uh, a great kind of centerpiece of the wisdom books that gives us a lot of different views on a lot of different things. Um, But we're trying to understand what does it mean to grow up into biblical wisdom. Uh, Today I'm going to speak on what women need. And so if you will begin praying for me right now. Um, This this has been a horrible week trying to figure this one out. Um, So I'm just going to kind of just read a bunch of Bible verses to you. And that's really all I got planned for today. So, um, amen. Thank you. I will... uh, Admit my ignorance up front. We're going to read Proverbs 11.22. Um, I want to frame this with the, with the question that John Eldridge talks about. I mentioned John Eldridge last week. Uh, John Eldridge has written some books on manhood and womanhood that I think are helpful, insightful. I, I wouldn't agree with all of his theology, and so I would tell you if you read his books to, to, to read it with a grain of salt, read it with a, a theology book in the other hand. Um, but I do think he's got some insights that are helpful And one that he talks about is the idea that the question that every woman asks is, am I beautiful? And that may not resonate with you, uh, with all of you, but I think it's pretty common from what I've seen in in counseling situations and just the women I've known. They may not ask it in that way, um, but they might ask it something along the lines of, am I desirable? Am I beautiful? Uh, Do I have a glory? Do I have a, a beauty and a value to me? Um, And so what we want to look at scripturally is that what happens is uh, because women are already the more beautiful sex, the more beautiful gender, it's already there that often women are satisfied with just a physical beauty and and not allowing it to go deeper to something else. So, So first of all, ladies, I would answer the question if you're asking that question, yes, you are beautiful. That's how God made you. And the question is, what are you going to do with that beauty? Are you going to use it to glorify God? Are you going to go deeper? Or are you just going to focus on physical beauty? Are you just going to make that what you're interested in, that where you're going to find your significance? And what the scripture says is to, to push beyond that, that there's really something deeper that God wants out of your life. And so uh, we see that pretty clearly here in, in Proverbs eleven twenty two. If you'll follow with me, it's just one verse I want to read to get us started. It says, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. It's a very uh, vivid portrait there. Uh, like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. So like I said, just by being a woman, you, you've, you're ahead of us in the beauty game, right? Just by being a woman, you're beautiful. We talked last week about some of the basic biological differences between men and women. Uh, men tend to have a little more muscle mass and women tend to be more beautiful, um, men's brains have been a little altered through testosterone, burning some of the connections in the corpus callosum, uh, and women, you know, have more connections up there. Uh, but there's just a way that, that God has made the, the female body. Women are just more beautiful. Men think women 
are beautiful. And the question is, are you going to be like uh, the picture in Proverbs eleven twenty two, where your beauty is just skin deep, where your beauty is basically the gold ring, but your character is like a pig. And that's, that's, that's the image that it, that it paints for us here in Proverbs eleven twenty two. That's really paralleled in the New Testament. You don't have to turn to this, but in 1 Peter 2, 9, it talks about your beauty shouldn't just be in your outward appearance. That doesn't mean you should uh, try to be ugly, right? I mean, the New Testament teaching sometimes is un- misunderstood where it says, you know, don't lo- allow your beauty to be in braided hair and gold jewelry, but it should be in these deep character issues. So it should be more than just your physical beauty. I, w- I would say, women, if, if, you, if you try to downplay your physical beauty too much, or if you try to look like a man, then that, that's, a pro- that's a sign of going too far in one direction. I would say also, if you dress immodestly and are always trying to attract and get attention physically, then you're going too far in another direction. The, the New Testament image is one of, yes, women are physically beauty, beautiful, and it should be uh, carried in moderation. There should be a modesty and a respect about how you carry your physical beauty, and your real beauty should be your character. Uh, and so what I think we need to understand or what I think women need to understand is, yes, you are beautiful. What women need is to understand, yes, you're beautiful, and God has something even greater beyond just physical beauty for you. He wants to give you a, a deep beauty of character that you can uh, share and glorify him with. Let me pray for us, and we'll ask God to, to teach us today. God, we thank you that you love us, and uh, we pray that you would help us. God, help us to understand uh, the beauty of womanhood. Help us to understand your purposes for it. Uh, God, I confess ignorance and just pray that you would teach us out of your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, uh, in counseling situations, often what I see is, is this crucial moment sometimes where a woman was told that she was ugly, that then uh, will cripple her. Um, she's had the, the question, am I beautiful, answered the wrong way. Uh, the other thing I see in counseling situations sometimes is that Maybe a woman is told she's beautiful, but then her beauty is seen as something to exploit, uh, and maybe she's been abused. And so, again, I, th- I think this, this question of am I beautiful uh, shapes women in a lot of different directions, sometimes negatively in, in different directions. Sometimes women understand, yeah, I do have a physical beauty, but they've been exploited because of that. Or maybe they've been told they're ugly. And I just want to understand or I want to answer up front, yes, God has made you beautiful, and God's desire is for you to be beautiful. And that's good and right, but God has something much deeper for you than just physical beauty. And I also want to say that I'm praying for those of you who have been hurt in that way. Because I know a lot of you have. I just know statistically that, that many women have been either verbally abused or physically abused. Um, it's a, it's a, a terrible world. It's a broken, sinful world that we live in. And so I just want you to know that I'm, I'm taking that into account as we speak these words and want to understand that that you've been hurt, but we have a God who is both just and gracious. And you should find comfort in the fact that God is just and a judgment day is coming someday, right? That the judgment will be meted out, but also that God is a redeeming, restoring God, and he can, he can restore you. He can transform you, and that's what his grace does. As we look at what women need today, I wanted to frame it along the kind of outline that we looked at last week with what men need. Because when you look back at Genesis, you see that Man and woman together are to reflect God's glory. Man and woman together are to reflect his image in the world. Uh, We see in the scriptures in Genesis 1 that God made both uh, man and woman, humankind, to have dominion 
over the earth. And so we talked last week about how men need a kingdom, and I would say that women also need a kingdom. Women need a kingdom, and they need to understand the dominion and the rule that God has for them. Now, I've said before, in our church, we understand what is called a complementarian position, and how I would just kind of summarize that real quickly is it's uh, biblically that men and women are equal before God, where they're not of different value but we have a complementary role, right? And that in the home, men are called to lead and women are called to respect and affirm their husband's leadership. And in the church, men are called to lead and women are called to respect and affirm that leadership. Now, that leadership should be godly. It should be gracious. It should be uh, sacrificial servant leadership. Uh, but that when we say that men are to lead, we're in no way saying that women are inferior. Um, we understand them to be complementary. So, uh, one extreme is traditionalism that, that kind of says that all men are just better than women and kind of seeing women as second-class citizens, kind of a, a kind of a domineering patriarchalism. We, we see that a lot of times in traditional cultures or in Muslim cultures sometimes, and we would disagree with that. We'd say, no, that's wrong. Uh, another extreme would be feminism that says there's really no differences between man and woman. They're just all the same, and we should just all be the same, and there's no, no role distinction. Well, we would say, no, the, the Bible actually does have a role distinction there that husbands are to lead in the home, uh, men are to lead uh, in the church. And we understand that both men and women are given dominion. And so women have this uh, supporting role when they're given uh, to work with man. And what's really interesting, if you want to flip over a few pages to Proverbs 31, we see how a woman is seen in that light as the perfect complement to her husband, who is a great leader. So if you're a young man who's being trained through the book of Proverbs, finally you come at the very end of the book uh, to the first real long description of a godly woman. This is really the only one that's really in depth here in Proverbs. I mean, most of Proverbs is, is written warning young men away from the forbidden woman, right, who would use her physical beauty just to allure men. And then women are used kind of figuratively to image wisdom, right, the beautiful image of lady wisdom. That's another image we get throughout Proverbs. Uh, but here we finally get the positive real life image of a woman. And it's a, it's a superwoman here. In Proverbs 31, uh, if you look at verse 10, what's crazy is the word that's used for the excellent wife, I think in the ESV it says excellent wife. I'm, I think if I remember correctly in the NIV, it's a noble wife. But it's this kind of word they use that has kind of a vague sense to it. But in the Hebrew, it's really more of a, a hero warrior army sort of word. And so this word in, in Proverbs 31.10, if you're following in the Black Bibles, it's just flipping over to page 552. In Proverbs 31, verse 10, it says, an excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. So this word excellent wife, it, it actually is a kind of an army word. It can be used, it could be translated as a mighty man or as an as a host of soldiers. So here, I, I don't know if you can see that very well. This is just like a field covered with soldiers, right? Thousands of soldiers. Uh, that picture, thousands of soldiers arrayed in battle, that's the same Hebrew word for excellent wife, right? So, so that's the kind of language, that's the lens through which a kingly man sees a great wife. She's like a great army to him. She's like great weaponry. She's like great strength to him. And so again, Proverbs paints the picture of the woman ruling and reigning side by side with her husband and being this great strength to him, right? Not just this meek and mild, you know, off to the side, be quiet, get out of my way, but she's, she's there fighting with him. She's there ruling and reigning with him. She's his queen and she is strong. And that's the word that we see 
here for excellent. Let's read through and just get a, get a picture here. It's really, you really have these kind of contradictions where in some ways Proverbs 31 paints this very traditional view, right? This very domestic view of wifery. But, but on the other hand, it, it, it paints this picture of this woman who's, who's leading and going out of the home and doing these great impressive things as well. And, and so we have this beautiful picture in Proverbs 31, again, of, of what I would call a superwoman here. Um, verse 10, it says, An excellent wife, or a strong wife, or a mighty, valiant wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. We'll come back to that later, but it's this idea of this woman who has a strength and a fearlessness because she trusts in God. Because she's secure in who God is. She doesn't have to fear the future. So she laughs at the days to come. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. We have this image of this woman who does all these things. She's kind to the poor. She cares for her family. She works outside the home. She works in the home. She's strong. Her arms are strong, yet she uh, makes beautiful bed coverings, right? She's still making the home beautiful. We have this image of this woman whose strength is used to make her man even stronger, to help her man have dominion. And so I think it's important to understand, again, this Genesis 1 setting that says that mankind is made to have dominion on the earth and give a glory to God by ruling and reigning as, as junior kings and junior queens over creation. And that's part of womanhood. That's part of the calling that woman has, assisting her man and coming alongside her man and helping him to rule and reign. So even women need a kingdom. And so in the eyes of Proverbs, this woman is seen as a great blessing, as a great jewel, as a great help. Now, there's other negative pictures in Proverbs as well. I'm just going to read a few of the negative pictures we have of, of a wife that's not helping her husband. Um, Proverbs 29 says, It's better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. It's basically saying, if, I'd rather live in the attic than live with the woman that's going to fight with me all the time, right? Proverbs 21.19 says, It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. It adds to the list not just that she's fighting, but she's fearful. Again, that's in contrast, right? Fretful, fearful, in contrast with this fearlessness that the godly woman has in Proverbs 31. 
Proverbs 25, 24 says it's better to live in a corner of the housetop. This is a, a repeat of the other one. It's better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. And then Proverbs 27, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. Um, Chinese water torture or like waterboarding, right? That's kind of what we're talking about here. Um, and so we have this picture in Proverbs that a, a, a woman can either be this incredible hindrance that makes someone's life miserable, right? If mama ain't happy, nobody's happy, right? You heard that, you heard that one before? Or she can be this incredible asset that, that is a great queen that uses all of her resources to bless her husband and her home, and not just her husband and her home, but the whole community, right? It, it gives this picture of her leading and interacting with other merchants in the community and feeding the poor and helping others. So it's this glorious vision of womanhood as, again, going alongside with the dominion that mankind was created for. We're, we're made to have a kingdom. And again, it closes with this idea of inner beauty versus external beauty in Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That word vain, um, we, I think we probably think of it more negatively than it really is in the Hebrew. It's that same word that's used in Ecclesiastes of uh, life is just but a vapor, right? Vanity, all is vanity. It's, it's this idea of like a puff of, of air. Um, a couple of days this year in the winter, it'll be cold enough where you'll see your, your uh, breath, right? Maybe a week we'll have that. But when your breath, you know, you can just see your breath and there's this kind of like puff of air and then it disappears, right? That, that's really what that word vain is. It's this idea of something, this mist, this vapor that's just there for a minute and then it's gone. So it's not saying beauty is evil, it's saying physical beauty comes and goes, right? It lasts just a short time. We only have a few years on this earth, but fearing the Lord is something that goes much deeper. It's much more lasting, right? And, and so again, I would say the Bible affirms the physical beauty of women and says that that physical beauty can be used immodestly to be a lure and be an, a manipulation tool, or it can be like a crown that accentuates this deeper, greater beauty that is there, fearing the Lord, speaking wisdom. The question is not whether or not you have physical beauty. It's, is that all the beauty you have? Is that it? Because if that's it, then it's like a gold ring in a pig's snout. I want to remind us again of when we think about having a kingdom, the vision that Jesus gives us of being a king is the vision of laying our life down for our friends that it talks about in John. In Matthew 20, it says, if you want to be first, you should be last. It says, don't be like the Gentiles who lord it over people. It says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Serving others is actually the road to being exalted. And Jesus says, if you want to have a kingdom, if you want to be a king, if you want to be a queen, serve others. And that's how you will make yourself great, make a name for yourself, but really bless others and follow in Jesus's footsteps. Well, the next thing I want us to look at is the concept that women need a garden. Women need a garden. And I think this one we uh, connect with a little more stereotypically with women. I, I talked about that last week, how men are made to be kings, but men are also made to help things to grow, right? Uh, as a farmer, or as a gardener. And we see this picture kind of in the, the big idea of we were placed in the beginning in the garden. It's this perfect paradise and we're told to take care of it and to grow it. And, and so Adam and Eve's original calling was to extend paradise in the world. And we basically got that completely flipped around, right? What we've done is we've extended 
death and misery in the world. And so women, as well as men, have that calling to extend and to bring life. We see it real clearly in uh, Genesis 2. He says, uh, Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. I read last week from Proverbs 12 that says uh, that a good man is, is kind to his beasts, right? That there's just this way that we care for creation, this general reflection we have of God's character when we care for the plants, when we care for the animals. This is a characteristic of righteous people, a characteristic of godly people as we care for the world. I want to just give an uh, example of what this looks like sometimes. If, if you're a mom, maybe you've done this before, uh, helping kind of nourish and grow things. Um, can you tell what that is? I don't know if you can see that picture. It's little sandwiches cut in heart shapes, right? Um, any moms out there ever cut a sandwich in heart shapes? A couple of you? Okay, yeah, a few of you done that. Uh, my wife does stuff like that sometimes, and, and I love that. And, you know, that's one of those things that, like, if, if I was just raising my kids on, on my own, their sandwiches would never be cut. A knife would never come to a sandwich. You know, it's like, why put in that extra step? But, but my wife loves to make them beautiful, right? To make them more fun. And that's part of the nurturing spirit. Now, I'm not saying that, that all of you women that you've got to cut sandwiches. That's, that's not what I meant. But I just use that as a tangible expression of what it can look like to bring beauty, right? To extend paradise. It's probably something completely different in, in your life. But part of your job Part of your job as you image God, as you reflect Him, as you glorify Him, is to bring beauty into the world. And the image in Proverbs 31 was she makes these beautiful bed coverings, right? She's clothed in, in silk and in scarlet, right? It's okay to care about those things. Being a Christian is not that extreme of, well, we, we hate beauty and that's deceitful and vain and so we, we just despise those things. No, it's good to care about beauty. That's, that's part of the calling and that's part of the interest that God, God has put into the heart of women. And, and you should go with that. But you should use it to glorify God. As I said, there are these extremes of either completely rejecting it and saying, I don't, I don't care about that at all. But the other extreme is, is using it in a sinful way, right? To allure people or to manipulate. No, God says, use beauty to bring glory to him. Our, our calling is to extend the garden. And we see that Women are made to be a, a perfect complement to man. I, I joked about how, even though I'm, I'm actually kind of a, an artistic person, like I'm, I'm actually really interested in art, be, you know, before I, I grew up and went to college, one of the jobs that, that I thought I might do was to be a professional artist. My mom encouraged me not to do that because she said I would never make any money doing that. But, uh, but I, have a, I have a real interest in beauty and in art, so it's not like uh, men don't care about those things, but still, there's a there's an interest that my wife has that seems to run deeper than I have in that area. And what we see in Genesis 2 is that God created woman to fit, to complement her man. And so women and men, masculinity and femininity are often, they're, they're often defined in, in relationship with each other. And so let's flip back to Genesis 2 and, and really look at this for a second. Genesis 2, verse 18. It's on page 2 in the Black Bibles, after all the Roman numeral pages. Page 2, we'll see this picture of how it's really made clear that, that man alone, masculinity, is not enough to image God. Now, I don't want to go to the extreme that some people say to, you know, go to today, and some people like to call God, you know, mother God and she God, you know, stuff like that. I mean, God's clearly 
um, revealed himself as father. God's clearly revealed himself through Jesus as son. And so God, for whatever reason, uses these masculine terms to reveal himself and, and ties himself to those masculine terms. And so I think we should refer to God in that sense. But we also see that humans, for humans, it's not enough just to have man. You need man and woman in humankind to reflect God's glory. That gives a fuller picture of who God is. And so we see this in, in uh, Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It's part of where we get this concept we call complementarianism. It's this idea of, of a helper, someone who really significantly helps. The word's often, often used of God and his salvation. Really helps and makes a difference in someone's life. And they fit, right? They fit together. They're a complement. They fill in the gaps that the man has. And God says it's not good for man to be alone. Think back, for those of you even that have never read your Bible before, you, you probably are familiar with the creation account in Genesis 1. It gives these six days of God creating everything, and, it, and there was this refrain, it is good, it is good, it is good. Do you remember that? Have you, have you seen that story before? So we've just, we've just been through that, so let's pretend we just read Genesis 1, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then what does he say here? It is not good that the man should be alone. Everything's perfect, there's no sin, everything's just the way it should be, and God says, man by himself, not good. I joke at weddings that he doesn't mean like leaving your husband alone at home. He just means that, that man doesn't fully reflect the character of God, right? That, that woman is, is made to, with man, reflect the character and the image of God. And so then God brings all the animals before Adam and lets Adam name all the animals. And he makes it real clear to Adam, you know, learning by experience, God must understand adult education theory. He, he helps him learn by experience that he is very alone. He sees all these animals in pairs, and he recognizes that he doesn't have a helper fit to him. And then it says in verse 21, so the Lord God, well, let's look at the, the end of 20. It says, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And then in 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Saying at last, she, she belongs to me. She's, she's like me. She's a helper fit for me. She's a compliment for me. So she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There was no shame. They fit together perfectly. They went together. And what I would uh, try to help us to understand this morning is that even if you're not married, that God, in general, throughout humanity, he, he wants to image himself through masculine and feminine. It's not saying that you can't, on your own, give glory to God as a person. You're saying at, at the level of 50,000 feet, God has decided to create humanity and to create them male and female, and that he values femininity, that that's part of his plan to, to image God, to show what he is like, because it's not good for man to be alone. And even if you go back to the creation of man earlier, it says he created man in his image. Uh, in 127, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. 
So again, we have this representative concept. Man, the masculine term is used to represent all of humanity. But within that kind of category, we have femininity and masculinity. And God wants both. Both are important. God values both. So we see this picture then. And they fall into sin. They're tempted. Things go bad really quickly in chapter 3. And then after things go bad quickly, God promises that someday a son of Eve is going to be born that's going to conquer sin and death. So Genesis 3.15, a lot of theologians like to point to and say that's really the first mention of the gospel. God promises to the serpent. He says, someday a son of Eve is going to come and crush you. You're going to be killed. So there's this promise made that's going to come through woman. This, this baby will be born. That's what we celebrate at Christmas that will crush evil for all time. And then Adam blesses Eve. And Adam says this in Genesis 3.20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And so we kind of have this paradigm. We have this paradigm in Genesis 2 that woman is made as a helper, a support that's fit, a perfect complement to man. And then we have this blessing given in Genesis 3 that woman is made to be the mother of all living. And I think whether you are biologically a mother or not, that you have a, a mothering deep inside you if you're a woman. I think that's part of what it means to be a woman. And I know many women who haven't been able to have children, there's this deep ache inside them because they long to be a mother. And I would say whether physically you can be a mother or not, you should be bringing life to things around you. That's part of what it means to, to have a garden. That's part of it, what it means to grow things, that you should be bringing life and nurturing the things around you. We see this uh, really made clear in, in kind of parallel passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can just write these down, and I'll just kind of give you the gist of what they say. But in Isaiah 54 and in Galatians 4, we're told that the new covenant will enable barren women to have children. And what it's saying is not the barren women then will then be miraculously physically healed so they can have biological children. What it's talking is about is the new birth through the church, what we understand the new covenant, that we can have life through Jesus Christ. Jesus talks in, in John 3, you must be born again. You have to have new life by faith in Jesus. If you're a woman, you can, through the new covenant, you can have this promise that you can rejoice that you can be a mother through the new covenant, that you can bring life to those around you. And so I would ask you, if you are a woman, and really if, if you're a man as well, but women, whether you have biological children or not, are you using your gifts to mother? Are you being an Eve? Are you, the mother of all living, are you being an Eve? Are you bringing life to this world? Are you extending paradise through the use of your gifts? I would say, figure out what your gifts are. What, what are you good at? What do you love to do? Doesn't mean you're, you're better than everybody else at it. Doesn't mean you're an Olympic or recognized or nationally acclaimed at this. It just means what are the things that God's gifted you at? What do you like to do? What are you good at? Take those things and use them to bless other people. Scripture talks about this again and again, that we would take our gifts and we would use them to extend paradise. And that paradise is restored through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So how are you using your gifts to help people to see and savor Jesus, that he brings us life and health? Faith in him is, is the solution. It says in Galatians 4.27, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. 
Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. The last thing I want us to think about is that we need a rescuer. We talked last week, I said that men need a cape, right? Men have this drive to be a hero. We all want to be a a superhero. And women are really there uh, alongside them. Women need that as well. They need to be on mission with their men. Uh, And the best way to understand, we talked about this last week, the best way to understand our role as heroes is to understand that we have a hero, right? That Jesus is the real hero, and Jesus rescues us so that we can then be caught up in the work of rescue. And there's a uh, great passage in 1 Peter 3 that talks about what it means for a woman uh, to be this fearless hero. 1 Peter 3 is page 1015 in the Black Bibles. And in 1 Peter uh, 3, we have this vision. I'm going to read, starting in verse 3. 1 Peter 3, 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. So again, a, a parallel of what we talked about at the beginning in 1 Peter 2. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. We really want to uh, stress there that submission, and this you see this in the context in 1 Peter, you know, we're told to submit to our earthly leaders in, in multiple different relationships. So this call is given to men as well, to women, to submit to earthly leaders based on the trust that God is good and he's taking care of you. You don't submit to people because they're trustworthy, you submit to them because you trust God. God puts people in authority over us and you say, okay, I'm going to trust and submit to their authority. We're all people under authority. I'm going to submit to them because I trust that really God's got me. God's going to take care of me. I'm going to be okay. I'm not an orphan. God will take care of me. The reason we have such a hard time submitting to earthly people or being in community with other people is because we know that they might fail. And that's true. But if we trust that God's got us, if he's taking care of us, that we're not an orphan, then we can actually live in harmony and relationship with other people. We can be in community and entrust ourselves to others. I'm going to read a section here. We've got a little time from John Piper. He has a great sermon that I'd really recommend on this this passage um, that clarifies a lot of these things. But he says the deepest root of of Christian womanhood mentioned in this text is hope in God. Says that quote in verse 5, the holy women who hoped in God. A Christian woman does not put her hope in her husband or in getting a husband. She does not put her hope in her looks. She puts her hope in the promises of God. And then he quotes Proverbs 31 that we already looked at. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. Piper says she laughs at everything the future will bring and might bring because she hopes in God. So women, what Piper is saying is that if you know that God is trustworthy, that gives you this kind of fearlessness that you can face anything in life with. He says Peter makes this deep, unshakable root of Christian womanhood explicit in verse 5. He's not talking about just any women. He's talking about women with an unshakable biblical root in the sovereign goodness of God. Holy women who hope in God. The next thing he says to see about Christian womanhood after hope in God is the fearlessness that it produces in these women. So verse 5 says that holy women of old hoped in God, and then verse 6 gives Sarah, Abraham's wife, as an example 
and refers to all Christian women as her daughters. It says, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So this portrait of Christian womanhood is marked first by hope in God, and then what grows out of that hope, namely fearlessness. She does not fear the future. She laughs at the future. The presence of hope in the invincible sovereignty of God drives out fear. Again, you're not fearless because you're so strong. You're not even fearless because your husband is so strong. You're not fearless because your boss is so strong. You're fearless because God is strong. Our hope is in God. He says, to say it more carefully and realistically, the daughters of Sarah fight the anxiety that rises in their hearts. They wage war on fear, and they defeat it with hope in the promises of God. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, to say it more carefully, you're constantly at battle with fear. We talked about this when, as a church, we were looking at Philippians 4 as a memory verse where it says that we should rejoice in the Lord and we shouldn't be anxious or worried, but we should pray. We should entrust ourselves to God. So when the Bible says we should not fear, when the Bible says we should not worry, when the Bible says we should not be anxious, it's not saying, oh, one morning you worried, you're out. Sorry, don't come in here anymore. That's not what it's saying, right? It's saying that we should continue to fight that fight. We should continue to take our trust out of the thing we're fearing as being more powerful than God and place our trust in God. We're to fight that fear. We're to fight that anxiety. Ephesians 6 gives the picture of, of pulling up the shield of faith. So here's a great womanly picture I found here of some soldiers. I'm kind of being sarcastic. Of some soldiers, right, with arrows hitting, hitting a shield. And the image that we're given in Ephesians chapter 6 is that when we trust God, that is a shield. It talks about the shield of faith. We trust in his might, not in our own. So Ephesians talks about daily putting on this armor. You're putting on the armor of who God is and trusting yourself to him. Faith is trusting him, not trusting your circumstances. Faith is trusting him, not your earthly rulers. Faith is trusting in the king of kings, not whatever kings, bosses, leaders God has put in your life presently. And when you entrust the king of kings, then that enables us to be men and women under authority. That enables us to submit to people that we know are going to fail us. We know they're going to mess up, but our trust is not in them executing everything perfectly. And so women, it says, actually bring glory to God. It actually says earlier in this passage that if you have an unbelieving husband, your husband can be converted to the gospel because of your fearlessness, because of your trust in God, because you're able to be submissive to him and know, you know what? God's, God's got me. He's taken care of me. And that's the picture that we get there of fearless womanhood. We need to recognize that we have this rescuer. And when we recognize that, then we can pass that on. Then your, your fearlessness will then be contagious. And then women, you can pass that on to your children. You can pass that on to your sisters. You can pass that on to your friends. You can empower and strengthen your husband, passing that on even to your husband. The picture that we see in Proverbs 31 of this great woman who makes her man greater just by being connected to him. We can have a fearlessness because we trust in God as the one that takes care of us. The promise of the gospel is ultimately what women need, right? Ultimately, you need to have a security in the God who would give himself for you. In the God who says, I, I know that you've been hurt, and I know that you've hurt other people. But I'm going to give my son to die for you, to die in your place, to take your sins and to take other sins upon himself and to give you his perfect righteousness. 
And so the question for you, whether you're a man or a woman, is are you trusting in this God who would die for you, who would give his life for you, who would be the the helper that you need, would be the helper fit for you that gave you exactly what you needed to save you and to strengthen you and to transform you. That's the call of, of true womanhood. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us. We pray that you would help us to trust in you. God, I pray that we would be a people that reflect the glory of of true femininity and womanhood uh, in the women in this church in a way that brings you honor, brings you glory, and points people to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.